So great to see you all today. My name is Nate. I'm the lead pastor at Restoration Church. Listen, if you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Begin to open up to 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one for free. If you just go to the Welcome Center after service, they will, um, you just ask them for one, they'll give you one. Ask me, I'll give you one. And if you've got a smartphone, you can download the Bible on your phone and recommend that you do that. So every week when we open the Bible, you can follow along with us. And then what will happen is there will be some services where God will speak to you um, through one of these verses. And so you should highlight that. You can even highlight it on your phone. And what will happen is uh, a few years from now, you'll be reading your Bible and you'll come to that scripture that you've underlined. And God will remind you what he did today or what he did in that service even a few years from now and he'll use that to just encourage you and to and to keep growing you and and keep moving in your life so uh while you're there i uh this week i had a friend come over my house and he said oh a yankees cup are you a yankees fan and i'm like no actually i'm a red sox fan and it reminded me about last year so last year um or a few years ago, I had said to one of our deacons, Mike Eunice, who happens to be a Yankees fan, I said, I've never been to Yankee Stadium, and if I'm ever going to go there, I'd like to go there with you, because you appreciate it, you care about it, um, you enjoy it, and so if I'm going to experience something with someone, I want to go with people who care. So I could just go by myself, but where's the fun in that? So uh, a couple years later, he got some tickets, and so Michelle and I and Mike and Laureen, that was last summer, we went to a game at Yankee Stadium. And so it was so great. We drove down, and then he brought us all over New York City, so we got fresh hot bagels, which are amazing. We went to this cafe. I got Turkish coffee. It was, it was just a lot of fun. So finally, it's time for the game, and... We go to the stadium, we park, park, he parks the car, and then we get out of the car, he pops the trunk open, and he pulls out four Yankees hats. And, uh, and so I, I, I'm just like l- looking at it, and Michelle's all excited, she's like, yeah, I'm going to wear a hat. And, and for me, I try to be a supportive friend, so I'm not going to, you know, they, the, the Yankees weren't playing the Red Sox, so... I was going to root for the Yankees with my friend Mike and, and cheer him on. And when they got a home run, I was going to clap my hands. And, and I, was, I was ready for that. But when, when he pulled out the hat, like I was, I, didn't, I was faced with a choice that I wasn't expecting. And, Mich- and uh, he's like, would you guys like to wear a hat? And Michelle, because, because I don't know, she doesn't sell out, no, because she doesn't care about baseball. She's like, absolutely. She puts on the hat. And he's like, Nate, what about you? And Michelle is putting all kinds of negative peer pressure on me. To wear Yankees hat. You know, again, I want to be a supportive friend, and ultimately it doesn't matter, but I just couldn't do it. And uh, so, uh, you know, like, eventually I'm like, no, I'm not going to wear one. And Mike was like, I respect that. And I, and, but it was weird because, honestly, I couldn't do it. Like, as soon as he pulled out that hat, and, and I knew he was going to ask me to wear one, it was like all kinds of internal turmoil that I wasn't prepared for and I wasn't really expecting. So all kinds of things going through in my head, like just wear the hat, who cares? You're at Yankee Stadium, who cares? Michelle's like, you're not going to see anybody you know. And I'm like, that's not true. We were in Cincinnati at a Cincinnati Reds game, and I ran into someone I knew. So you can't say that I'm not going to see someone. And, and so, and then I'm like, you know, if I wear this hat, like I just feel like somehow 
I've compromised in my life. Like I've become like a less of a Red Sox fan if I do that. You know, my dad raised me to be a Red Sox fan and I grew up in the days of Jim Rice and Mike Greenwell. And so they're like, that was it for me. Like it's, it's a heritage, it's a family thing. So anyway, I didn't wear the hat and, and I supported my friend of the game. And when he went to the, the Yankees Hall of Fame there, I took his picture next to all the statues and bronze faces, and when Aaron Judge hit a home run, I clapped my hands and cheered, and, and, uh, but I couldn't wear the hat, and, and I just couldn't compromise, and I wonder, have you ever been in a situation where, where you were faced with a choice to compromise against, like, who you are, maybe, who, or who you were raised to be? Have you ever been in that place where there's a decision to make, and you know that somehow, if you, if you make a decision to do this, you'll be going against who you are. And maybe it is a decision against your character. And you just know, like, I'm not a person, I'm not a person who cheats, but all of a sudden you have an opportunity to get all the answers on your finals. Maybe you say, this is, this is the type of person that I'm going to date, but then all of a sudden someone asks you out and, and, and you're faced with a choice to accept it, but you know they're not really the type of person you want to be with. Maybe it's a, this, all, all these type of decisions. It's a decision for a career and, and it's for more money, but it's going to change your, your lifestyle. It's going to change what you invest in. It's going to change even how you're able to serve in church. And you're just, we're always faced with these choices. Maybe it's even a, a, a choice based on your, your convictions. Sometimes we, we have things in our life that the Bible doesn't say it's wrong, but for us as an individual, we know God's told us not to do that. But everybody else is okay with it, and everybody else is participating in it, and you're faced with the choice to just do what everybody else is doing, or to live the, and to be set apart the way that God's called you to live. Have you ever been faced with that? Have you ever been faced with a decision to go against what God wants for you. This is kind of a bigger deal, a little bit more weighty, but you feel like God has something for you. God has a path he's told you to go. God has a direction for you to go, and you're faced with the decision to go against that. This morning, I want to talk about compromise, and this isn't the, the positive use of compromise that's good for your marriage and uh, we're not talking about, about that, but the second definition of compromise, which means to accept standards that are lower than desirable. Have you compromised? Have you just accepted a lifestyle or accepted a way of living or accepted a belief system or, or accepted a set of behaviors that are lower than desirable, lower than you would want for yourself or lower that God would want for you? In this series, we're talking about Elijah, and today, as we look at this part of his life, what I hope is, for us as, as a church, well, first, what I'd hope is, if you're here and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, you've never made a decision to give him your life, that you would do that today. And that is the greatest decision you can make in your life, and and, and the greatest moment, the greatest opportunity you could ever have. And, and, we, and so I hope that you hear about Jesus today and that you make that decision for yourself. But if you're here and, and you say, I made that decision at some point in my life and, and I believe in Jesus and, 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 and I want to follow him. What I hope is for us 
that in our heart, we would be so devoted to God that no matter what circumstance we're in or what circumstance we face, we would not sin against him. And in the passage we're about to read, you know, there's all kinds of pressure in this nation right now. There's all kinds of pressure against Elijah. There's all kinds of pressure against followers of God. And we're about to read is two people who didn't compromise. So 1 Kings chapter 18, we start reading at verse number 1. We'll read verses 1 through 4. It says, later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. Meanwhile, the famine had become very severe in Samaria. So Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a devoted follower of the Lord. Once, when Jezebel had tried to kill all of the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had hidden 100 of them in two caves. He put 50 prophets in each cave and supplied them with food and water. If you're just jumping into this series today, um, uh, one, like, definitely recommend to go on and listen to the previous two weeks in the series. But let me give you some background and, and explain here's what's happening. So two weeks ago, we started this series uh, in 1 Kings 17, starting at verse number 1. And now two weeks later, in the timeline of the story, it is three and a half years later. And Elijah went to King Ahab and said, there's not going to be any rain or dew in this entire nation until I give the word to, until I pray to God for it to rain. And what he was doing is coming against the idol worship that King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were bringing into the nation. And they were working feverishly to eradicate the belief of God and the worship of God in that nation. And so Elijah is coming and confronting that and telling them, uh, and is going to prove to them with God's help that it is God who's, who's in charge of everything. So King Ahab is very angry at Elijah. And for the last three and a half years, he's been hunting him, trying to find him, trying to kill him. Um, and trying to show what he, was, what he believed is if he kills Elijah, then it will rain again because it is their false god, uh, Baal, who is holding, withholding the rain because he's mad at Elijah. So Ahab's gone throughout his entire nation. He's even going to other nations, confronting other kings and asking them, hey, are you hiding him here? If you are, and we find out, if you're lying to me, we'll bring war against your nation. He wants him dead. He's the number one hunted man in this entire nation. And so we're at this point in the story where, um, or of this account where the drought's been going on and uh, King Ahab's got a lot of horses and a lot of mules and he's trying to find a place for, for them to feed. And so he sends uh, Obadiah to go one direction and he goes the other trying to find somewhere where they can bring all of these horses to feed. And when Obadiah goes one way, God sends Elijah to uh, intersect with Obadiah on that path. And here's what we know a little bit of background about Obadiah. Um, Obadiah knew who Elijah was. 
when they met in this field after three years, Obadiah instantly recognized him, instantly bowed before him, and then he called him master or, or teacher. So uh, they speculate that, or they believe that Obadiah was a student of Elijah's and had trained under him. And there's uh, a prophet in the Bible, and there's a book of the Bible called Obadiah, and about, it seems like half the scholars believe that uh, this Obadiah in this account was the same guy who wrote that book in the Old Testament, but there's another half who believe that he weren't, that he wasn't, and it's hard to know for sure because there were about 12 different Obadiahs mentioned in the Bible. But what we do know is that in this field, and it wasn't random, but God orchestrated it, two godly men met and had a meeting. They intersected each other. Now, it's a pretty rare occurrence that this would happen since Jezebel was doing everything she could to kill all the prophets of God. They're each coming from a different place when they're in that field. Elijah has got a, he's got a national ministry. He is uh, living his life. And what he's doing is he is uh, outwardly coming against and confronting an evil regime that's hell-bent on worshiping idols and eliminating God. And he's confronting them and he's coming against that. Obadiah is working and is employed by that evil regime. So there are two godly men, but one is coming against the palace and one works in the palace and works for the king. This week as I was reading about Obadiah and, and studying about him and learning about him, I read a lot of negative articles and a, neg a lot of negative commentary about his life. Sermons about how he had compromised, sir, uh, uh, commentaries about how he, you know, how he uh, had compromised such in his life that he would even work for such an evil king. Um, and he, he had to have compromised in his life some way in order for him to work in that palace. Except the problem I have with, with that belief and that that understanding of Obadiah is, it said right here in verse number four, we, where we just read, it said he was a devoted follower of the Lord. That doesn't sound like someone who's compromised. That doesn't sound like someone who's lived a lower standard for their, his life. He, when he met Elijah in the field, it said he instantly bowed down. He didn't look over his shoulders to make sure no one was around. He wasn't afraid to be recognized and to honor the most wanted man in the nation. Obadiah wasn't a man who was compromised or who had compromised. Like Joseph before him, Joseph had been sold into slavery and then God raised him up to be, uh, to be head of Potiphar's house, and then he was arrested, and God raised him up to be head of the prisoners, and then he uh, was freed from prison, and then God raised him up to be head of the nation. No one ever accuses Joseph of being compromised. There was Daniel, and there's a famous account of Daniel's life where he was in the, thrown in the lion's den, and maybe you've heard that story at one point. Well, David, uh, Daniel, excuse me, was being called uh, to worship the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he wouldn't do it. And then it was made illegal to pray, but he still opened his windows and prayed out loud three times a day. And despite all of that, God raised him to be second in command of the nation. And then at one point, governments were overthrown, and the, the new 
king had even contemplated the making Daniel head over the entire nation, the number one guy in the entire nation. No one ever accuses Daniel of compromising. Then there was Mordecai who was behind the scenes working in the story of, Mordecai, uh, of Esther. And there, there was a guy in a plot for a, uh, a genocide against the, the Jewish people. And God rose Mordecai up into, into leadership and into a place of influence. And no one ever accuses him of compromise. And what I'd say is Obadiah was not compromising. He, God had given him influence and he used that for the kingdom of God. A famous preacher from, from years past, uh, his name was Charles Spurgeon. He said this about Obadiah. He said, as it is horrible to find a Judas among the apostles, so it is grand to discover an Obadiah among Ahab's courtiers. What grace must have been at work to maintain such a fire in the midst of the sea, such godliness in the midst of vilest iniquity. Here is a guy working in the, in, in the, for, the, for the evilest man and woman, working in this, uh, in this vile palace, and yet he maintained his relationship with God. He did not compromise. May we as individuals, may we as people who follow Jesus, may we be like Elijah, may we be like Obadiah, people who never compromise against our God, people who never compromise in our beliefs of God, people who never compromise in the life that God has called us to. No matter what the national circumstance is, no matter what pressures against us, no matter how popular Jesus' name may ever be, may we never compromise. So we read this passage, though, in these verses 1 through 4, I did see a group of people who I believe compromised. I did see a group of people here that I don't want to be like and that I don't want you to be like. In verse number four, it says, Obadiah had hidden 100 prophets in the caves. Just think about this for a moment. Why were these prophets hiding in caves? Why, like in this, in this atmosphere where there's so much pressure against Elijah, there's so much pressure against, the, the, uh, against God, why were they not helping Elijah? How come when Elijah was at the top of Mount Carmel and we'll be talking about that story, story, that account next week, why was he there? Why was he the only one there up facing 500 of the, uh, of the prophets of the false god Baal? Why was Elijah there alone when there's at least a hundred other prophets that exist. I think these men were more concerned about their own life than they were, than, than they, uh, more concerned about their own life than they were concerned about God's name being proclaimed. They were more concerned about saving their own life than they were about other people knowing who God was. They went into this preservation and, and protecting themselves, and they, you know, and they, they kind of were fearful for their own life, and they, they didn't seem to care 
Like they cared, they didn't do anything about it. The fact that God was going to be eliminated, that worship of him was going to be eliminated, that people, that a generation would come who wouldn't have the opportunity to hear about him. They, they hid. They didn't stand up against what was happening. Remember, they're prophets. And they've been given this assignment, and their sole responsibility is to be a voice of God to the people. So by hiding in the cave, they weren't even doing what they were called to do. This is the group who had compromised. And if we look at them, they're hiding in a cave. They, they have not sinned. So this morning I want to talk to you about compromise, but not the type of compromise that you think where you turn into this mass murderer or you're stealing money from, from, uh, from the elderly or just anything corrupt or, or cro- outright crooked, but as compromise in your life that you're just under what God has for you. You're just below what he's called you to do. You're just not quite living where he's called you to be. It's living below the standard that's desirable. Signs of compromise. One, you're hiding. And this seems obvious, but here are these guys in the cave hiding from Jezebel, hiding from King Ahab. And in your life, you know, are you in a place where you're hiding? You're, you're afraid to tell people where you were on Sunday. You're afraid to tell people what you believe. You're afraid to tell people about your story and about what God has done in your life. You're just hiding. You're just trying to blend in. You're just trying to not get noticed. You don't want to be confronted. You don't want to be unpopular. You don't want to be challenged. You don't want to, you don't want to have anything. You don't want to lose anything. And so you're just hiding. And when there's pressure put on, those are the point, points where we, we convince ourselves like, oh, you know, I, I just, I, you know, I, I need to stay seated. I don't want to upset people. I don't want to push my beliefs on people. And, and we're not telling you to do that. But you're called to be a light for God. And Jesus said you, you're, you don't take a light and then hide it under a basket. And you don't take a light and then hide it inside a cave. You don't, you're not called and ordained and destined to be a prophet and then go to the very place where people won't hear. Are you hiding? You're not in sin, but you're hiding. Signs of compromise, you are being served rather than serving. Obadiah, we, we don't know how he did this, but he's bringing bread and water to 100 men. And, and it's the middle of a drought. I mean, there's, there's starvation on a national level going on. And he's risking his own life uh, going forward and bringing food. And there's about over 2,000 caves in that region of the world. And so it wasn't like just one. He's got a cave in his backyard. And he's, you know, walking out of the palace in the morning with uh, water and food for 100 men. And, like, no one's noticing. I mean, it's a lot for him to be able to do this. It's a lot for him to 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 accomplish this, and here are these guys who are the prophets of God, and, and this Ob- the Obadiah that we're reading about, from what we can understand, he wasn't a prophet. He was just a guy who loved God and feared God. 
But here he's the one serving these men of God. You're, you've, comp- you've compromised, you've lived for a lesser standard when you're in a place where you just show up to church to be served and you're not serving. It's, it's not sin, it's a, but it's a compromise. It's less than what God has for you. Think about Obadiah coming and bringing bread and food to these men. And just, he's serving them. It would just be, just be like this absolutely bizarre if they just begin to complain to him that he's not feeding them enough or he's not doing enough for them. So I, th- so I thought about that. Um, just different times as I've been a pastor, and not just here, but it happens. You know, I, got, I got friends who are pastors all over the world, and it seems to happen everywhere that sometimes there will be people who come in, and they just show up to a service, and they want to be served. And they show up to a service, and they say, hey, pastor, feed me. And sometimes they leave, and they say, I'm not getting fed. Um, listen, that's in a place of compromise. These hundred prophets... They all had capacity of, of their own to go out and find food, to go out and find water. They didn't have to rely on one man to bring them food and water. And you as an individual, like it, we, we don't believe, and it's not such that you have to come here and I'm the only person capable of dispensing God's word to you. The Bible, we have a translation in English, and every, just about every single person here can read English. And so you have the opportunity to take God's word and feed yourself. You are in a place of compromise when you come in and say, hey, I'm not going to feed myself all week. I'm going to wait for you to do that for me. That is a lesser place. God want, My position is to equip you for what God has for you, not to be bringing you bread and water in your cave. You are, yeah, a sign of compromise would be that you're not sharing the message. It's, it's not popular during Elijah and Obadiah's day to share the message of God, but it doesn't keep Elijah from doing it. it. Doesn't keep him from doing miracles, from sharing, from confronting, from it doesn't it doesn't stop him because he knows what his mission is. He knows who his God is. It's not popular for Obadiah to be risking his life. It's not popular for him to be honoring. Uh, Elijah, it's not popular for him to be uh, devoted fully to the Lord during this time and in this place, but yet he never compromises. And when you are in a place and, and it's not popular, and that happens for us, and maybe it's in your family, maybe it's where you work, maybe it's in your neighborhood, and it is not popular to say what Jesus has done in your life. It's not popular to say you believe in God's word. It's not popular to say you believe Jesus, and you want to live for Jesus, it's not popular to share that good news with other people. What do you do in that time? If we've given our life to Jesus and we've been changed by him and we've been forgiven by him, we don't have a choice in that. 
He said when he left this earth, he said, now you go therefore also and make disciples. Help other people learn about me. Help other people follow about me. Share the good news all over the world. This is your mission. This is your assignment. And you will do that until, until I take you to heaven. Like this is what you're about. This is your primary earthly responsibility. You've got to do this. You've got to be the light to the world. You've got to be a city on a hill. You've got to show people who I am and how much I can help them. You have to share that good news. And if you're not sharing the message, it's a sign of compromise. And then last sign of compromise is you don't risk anything. Just, just in your cave. You're not trying to invite anybody. You're not trying to share your story with anybody. You're not praying bold prayers for God. You're not saying, Lord, use me. You're saying, Lord, keep me safe. Lord, make me comfortable. And he's not called us to that. He's not called us to be comfortable. He's not called us to just show up at church on Sunday. He's called us on an adventure. He's called us to risk. He's called us to experience. He's called us to confront. He's called us to see miracles. He's called us to be used in miracles. He's called us to that, to experience things we could never, ever experience, to know him in ways no one else may ever know him. And that's what he's called us to, every single one of you, including me. And if you are in a place where you don't risk anything and you never step out in faith, then listen, you're in a place of compromise. Not that you're in sin, but you're living less than God has for you. There's a guy, and, and some of you may have heard of him. His name is Sir Nicholas Winton. He, uh, he grew up in England, and when he was 29 years old, he worked as a stockbroker. And he... He was doing well, and so for a 29-year-old, was pretty wealthy, and so he began to travel kind of all over the world. And he had this ski trip planned to Sweden, and he was going to be meeting another friend there and, and skiing. So sounds like a pretty amazing life for a 29-year-old. Well, his friend who was supposed to be going on the trip with him canceled, and he said, listen, I'm in Czechoslovakia, and I'm doing work helping the people here, and so I can't come on the trip. And what was happening is, this was before World War II, but the Nazis were infiltrating Czechoslovakia and putting all kinds of pressure on that country. And so people were fleeing. There's a lot of refugees happening, even though the war hadn't started yet. And so Sir Nicholas Winton said, well, I'm gonna, I'll go with you. I'll meet you in Czechoslovakia, and you can show me what's happening. So he went. He traveled with his friend. He went to all these refugee camps. He began to see the oppression that the Nazis were putting on the check on the those people before the war even started, and he began to travel. He was traveling around, seeing all this. Well, word got out about this Englishman who who was interested in what was happening to the Czechos to to these people, and so he as he recounts his story, he said one morning when he opened his hotel room door, there was a crowd of people there asking him to help their children. Now here he is, 29 years old. And he's supposed to be on a ski vacation, and he could have just disregarded it. He could have said, listen, I'm a tourist. He could, have, he, could have, he could have done nothing very easily. But he saw their desperation, and he began to wonder if there's anything he could do to help. So he, he, he didn't end up going back to England for quite some time, but he, he stayed there. 
and he ended up setting up an office within Czechoslovakia, had a couple assistants helping him, and he began every day at his cafe meeting with parents and begin to get collect information about their children, getting pictures, getting their names, getting all kinds of background from them. And then his office, he began tracking all of this. And then at the same time, simultaneously, he began to write every country and try to work with every embassy to try to find a country that would take these kids. Now the war hasn't started yet, so people are, are, are ignoring him, including our own country. And he's writing and he's not giving up, but, but no one's opening their doors for these children. And the parents aren't going to be going with their children. So parents are asking him, get my kids out of this country. We can feel and sense what's about to happen. We know what's about to happen. We know what's about to come. Please help us get our kids out of here. Eventually his own country... England opened their doors, and, but with a few, uh, a few provisions. One, they had to have a family in England who would agree to take every kid. So they couldn't bring kids over unless there was a family lined up. And then secondly, they had to have 50 pounds uh, uh, set aside for each child. And I know nothing about British money, but back then it was a significant amount of money per kid. And so he traveled back to England. He set up an office in uh, England inside of his, his home, this single 29-year-old, and begin to work matching people up with kids. And the work he did during that time really changed the way adoption works around the world. But eventually he, he began to line up, and so it finally happened. He had his first train filled with children. They left Czechoslovakia. They went through Germany and then traveled to, uh, to France, I believe, and then got on a boat and went over to England and were lined up with families. And he began to do this a few more times. He, uh, he was really forgotten in history, but now you can research his life and, and what he did, and it's known as Operation Czech Kinder Transport. Jesus has not called us to hide in caves. He's called us to save lives. He's called us to share of his good news with, with anybody who will listen. Not to, not to attack people with it, but to say, man, he's, he's great. He's great. He's great. He's, he's loving and kind and forgiving to share that with people. This is what he's called us to do. This week on the We Are Restoration Facebook group, I'll, I'm going to post an hour-long uh, documentary I found about his life and about his story with was, was all kinds of interviews. And, and if you get time this week, I'll just encourage you to watch it. He said, um, he said this during that video. He said, you know, because they, they kind of asked him, like, why at 29 would you... Would you care? Why would you help? And his response was, I've always lived by the motto that if something isn't blatantly impossible, there must be a way of doing it. Just, he could have turned his eye, he could have hid from it, he could have like ignored it. He said, man, there's something, there's got to be something I could do. And so he talked about his, his life and this experience. Like he, he brought a couple uh, tr trains of kids over. 669, but their largest, um, their largest 
or, or most filled train was scheduled to come and they had all the families lined up, they had all the money lined up, they had all the paperwork done and they had it scheduled to leave Czechoslovakia in the beginning of September. But on September 1st, 1939, war broke out in Czechoslovakia and there was no way to get that train out. And he just, he talks about it, the, you know, here they had their, the largest group of kids they were going to be able to save and they couldn't get it done in time. When he first went to Czechoslovakia, his boss is calling him and putting pressure on him and, and, and telling him, um, like, listen, why are you caring about these kids who are so far away? There's money to be made here. Like, I need you to come back. We've got money to make. We've got work to do. And, and tell him, like, forget about that. It's too far away. Remember, the war hasn't broken out. And so he's, he's doing something that no one else is doing. No one else is paying attention to because maybe it'll be possible to make a difference. When in their interview, in, in that video, they interview one of the boys who was rescued, who is was now, uh, in the video, he's a grandparent. His kids are there and his grandchildren are there. His grandchildren are teenage age. He's older in age. He never saw his parents again. How scary and traumatic it must have been for the kids, but for the parents who, who are saying, I, I've got to do something. I've got to rescue my kids. And putting their kids on a train to a country they've never been to, to live with people they'll never meet, just... On a, on a gut feeling that there's danger to come. And I, I think just about all of the, those kids, um, all of their, they never saw their parents again. And this older guy, as he's talking about, as he's talking about it, talking about his parents, and his parents had ended up at the, um, one of the concentration camps, and he said, when my parents were in those camps and they saw the kids in those camps it was probably at that moment when they knew they did the right thing and he was just broken and in tears knowing the sacrifice his parents did for him and then so grateful for this single 29 year old stockbroker who cared viewer Asked during all of this, like, what happened if that war hadn't have, hadn't have broken out and they were able to get that next transport of kids out? Would he have been like, yeah, you know, 669 plus another 100, 250 kids, that's good. I'm going to go back to skiing now and hanging out now. Like, at what point would he have, done, would he have stopped? What point would he have stopped rescuing these kids? And when he said, hey, I'm good, like, it's been a, yeah, inconvenient enough, like, uh, I'm done now. No, wouldn't, at what point would you have stopped trying to help those kids? Especially now, knowing what we know on this side of history about what happened and what atrocities were faced, we, we wouldn't have quit. And this is, this is the heart behind our mission and, and how we verbalize. Man, when do we stop sharing about Jesus? We don't. We're, our prayer is always just one more. Just one more, and, and Sir Nicholas Winton, Winton, his same heart, if I, can, if I can rescue one more kid, if I can help one more kid. We 
can't live a compromised life, just less than desirable, less than what God has for us. We've got to live the life that he has called us to live. If you close your eyes, I'm going to pray for you. Jesus, we know what you've done in our life, and I know what you've done in mine. And I pray for anyone in here who's never made a decision to follow you, never made a decision to give their life to you. I pray they do that right now. They just pray. They just say a simple thing to you. Jesus, I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to be my Lord and my God. I ask you to, I, I believe that you're God's son. And I make a decision to t today to follow you. May every person here who's never done that, may they do that now in Jesus' name. God, for our church, for the individuals of our church, and for our church as a whole, I pray we would be like Elijah, we would be like Obadiah, doing whatever we can to, uh, to help people to know you, doing whatever we can, doing whatever you called us to do, no matter how popular, no matter how dangerous, no matter how, um, how much of a sacrifice it calls for us, may we do what you've called us to do. May we never live less than that. And I pray this in Jesus' name. The band is going to sing for just a minute. And I encourage you, in this time, talk to God about maybe areas where you're living less than he's called you to live. Or maybe something that he told you to do a long time ago, but you just haven't done it. Or maybe if you're living like Elijah and like Obadiah, that, you, that, you, that you'll finish the race, that you won't give up that you won't quit.